0: Uh, In the meantime, we're we're at the halfway point of uh, our series through the book of Colossians. And um, this is the first time that I've gotten to preach it in about four weeks, so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, But last week, Pete uh, led us through um, the the first part of chapter 2 up until I think verse 8 or so. And um, if you're new to this or if you need a a reminder, we're going through the book of Colossians and the, the church in Colossae that Paul, who is in prison in Rome, is writing to, is about uh, 1,500 miles or so away from where Paul is currently. And he's heard reports about this church that's about four years old, and he's writing them in response to some of the things that he's hearing. And even though he's never met them, he wants to encourage them and to make sure that they continue on in their faith, that they don't give up on Jesus because Jesus does not give up on us. And so he wants to make sure that they understand um, that, that he is all that there is. That when you discover Jesus, you've discovered the fullness of God, and there's nowhere else that you need to really look in order to add on to him. He's, he's just like someone that you discover, and then you discover even more about and more about and more about. And you could spend eternity discovering more and more about Jesus and be amazed and awed at what you find in him. And he wants to make sure that they understand that. And um, last week, what Pete talked about is that God has an intention for their church. It's not just for their church, but really every church, is that uh, we would be used by Him. That that there's really a mystery um, of God at work in us. That it was God's intention from the beginning, not just to save us, not just to make us new, not just to take us to some other place called heaven but to really fill us with His Spirit to make us new that God would be living inside of us. And Paul says that this has been a mystery from the beginning of time. And there are other places in the Bible, and Peter mentions this, that even angels have waited generation after generation longing to see the day when God does this. And they've wondered about the way that God was going to save people and make them new and actually live inside them. And so it's a mystery that's been unfolding for thousands of years. And you and I actually get to experience and understand the mystery that angels have wondered about for thousands upon thousands of years. It's amazing, right? And, and God, the reason that God does this and the reason that He's unveiled this mystery to us is because he has a purpose for us and that is that we would be people who make disciples of Jesus who can then make more disciples of Jesus. And Paul is writing essentially to a group of people he's never met before but who are his spiritual grandchildren. I think you guys talked about that last week, right? And 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 so he's 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 understanding that this group of people are like his his grandchildren, like people who have been adopted into his own family and he wants to make sure that they carry on both the family identity and the family purpose in the world don't forget what this family is about it is about Jesus he fills us and he empowers us to bring more people into his family and see them changed and filled um, and so he he kind of in the in the Maybe one of the main phrases that he uses, he says, and so, just as you received Christ, continue in Him. Don't give up. Don't don't back down from what our family is about. Continue to live in Him. Be rooted in Him. Strengthened in Him. So it kind of begs the question, and this is the next thing that Paul really addresses, if we're to continue in Christ, we need to receive Him in order to continue, Right? You can't continue in something that you haven't started, right? Like you can't continue to run a race that you haven't begun to run, right? If you're not in the race and you're sitting in the stands and somebody says, hey, keep running the race, you'd go, I'm not even in the race. I'm just sitting on the sidelines. I'm watching other people run the race, but I'm not really in it. So you need to actually be in and receive Jesus in order to continue in Him. And so the very next thing that Paul addresses is this question, what does it mean to receive Him? What does it mean to come to know Him and to follow Him, to accept Him, really to become a Christ follower or a Christian? Um, And yet, here's the thing I, I understand. When it comes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus or a Christian or to receive Jesus or any kind of label that we might put on it, there are a whole lot of misconceptions of what that actually means or what it entails or what happens when that happens to us. So let me ask you this, rather than me kind of filling in the blanks, what are some of the misconceptions about what it means to receive Jesus that are, are common in our culture here in America or in South Jersey? What are some of the misconceptions either that you've come up against in conversations with other people, or maybe you've thought them in the past, or maybe even they're kind of rolling around in your minds today? Okay, that you have to be baptized in order to what? In order to receive him. Baptism, like what kind of baptism are you talking about? Okay, so like infant baptism. So if if you weren't sprinkled when you were a child, then... Um since that ritual didn't happen to you, you never received him. And so the, you have to go through that ritual in order for that to happen, right? And that creates kind of a class or distinction in the church maybe even. Okay, what else? Can't have any fun anymore. Right. Why is that? Ah, Right. So to receive Jesus means primarily it's about what you do do and don't do. So if you follow the list of good things and you do those good things, and there's a list of bad things and you don't do the bad things, then it, it proves that you've received Jesus, right? You fail to do either of those two lists that someone else creates or that maybe that you create in your own mind, and that means you must not have received Jesus, right? Because you're now not a good person. Uh, or you need to be a good person, right? It's really all about what you do. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's kind of the opposite view. So rather than it being all about you, it's really not about you. And, and so being a, a follower of Jesus, receiving Jesus, means that He cares about your spiritual life. He cares about your Sunday morning life. And as long as you clean yourself up well enough to be able to present yourself in some kind of worship service you can live the rest of your life the way that you'd like to without, any, without Jesus being part of it. And so we compartmentalize life into different sections. And Jesus is part of some of those sections in kind of a box, but the rest of our lives are really ours to live. Right? And Jesus has nothing to do with those things. and has no say over them. What else? Yeah, so there are, there are different classifications of sins. And the more presentable ones belong to those who are part of the church. And those people are accepted because their classification of sin is far less a degree than other people. Therefore, they can be part of God's family. And those who participate in the worst of sins, or at least the ones that we consider the worst in our culture, those people are excluded from the family of God. It's interesting, when you look at Jesus' life, He flip-flops those two things. He says, actually, those whose sins are most on the surface are the ones that are easily acceptable by Me because they realize how much they need Me. It's you Pharisees, those people who who construct lives where their sins are hidden, who have the worst time accepting Jesus for who He is because they're trying to present something of themselves so that they're better than other people. That's And that's... That's everywhere in our church culture today, right? It's the whole reason why the church seems to be more, um, I I don't know, uh, more acceptable or or, um, more attended by those people who can clean themselves up. And it's the ones who have the hardest time doing that. It's the ones who feel like they're most unacceptable that seem to stay away the furthest, and in Jesus' world, it was the opposite. Because he had such radical grace, those who seemed furthest from God were actually the ones who were nearest to him. It's crazy, right? But it's a misconception. I saw a couple other hands. Who, yeah. Right. Yeah, so the inverse of, of what you're talking about is this idea that when you come to faith in Christ, when you receive him, he makes everyone look exactly the same. Do you ever You know, come up against somebody that has that in their mind. Like everyone's an individual and individualistic and has strengths and weaknesses. But if you come to know Jesus, if you get involved in something called the church, then everyone's vanilla all of a sudden. You know? Like as if God strips away all of our uniquenesses and just makes us robots that love Him. When actually the reality is that we become more who God intended us to be, become more individualistic. We get in touch with ourselves to a deeper level, and even though we're one in Christ, we're each unique in the way that God made us. It's a major misconception. I, I think of a you know the misconception that in order to come to know Jesus, you see you need to be on the process of cleaning your own life up first before you come to Him, as if the you know. The cross and Jesus' forgiveness of you can only go so deep. And really, you need to work your way up to a certain level before He can take you beyond that, right? It's a misconception. It's a complete and outright lie. Uh, I think, you know, the misconception about coming to receive Jesus is really just about your mind but not your heart, and so you can believe Jesus with your mind, not live with Him in your in in the very center of your existence, and somehow call yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus. And and Jesus's life and in His world, th- that was not a possibility. You could not say, "I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I live just like everybody else does." Jesus would go, "Your life and your and your mind don't match up with one another," and so. It, If I don't have all of you, I don't have any of you. It's the way that he works, right? Um, Oftentimes, we want to add God into our existence as if he's our personal assistant. And I love what Tim Keller says about that. He goes, you don't ask the one who created the universe to come in and be your personal assistant. Like, if anything, you are his. You belong to him, not the other way around. There's a ton of misconceptions. I think the main one that, that... maybe like a lasso around a a whole bunch of them, is the misconception that coming to receive Jesus is primarily about what you do for Him. And so it might be what you do for Him in terms of a moral code. It might be what you do for Him in terms of a spiritual ritual. It might be what you do for Him in terms of your service to other people. But Christianity is primarily about what you do. And what Paul wants to make sure that we understand, as well as the first church that he wrote this to understands, is that it's not, even though it, it does change everything about what you do, it doesn't start with what you do. And so when Paul says continue to live in Him, he says there's something that needs to happen to you in order for you to continue. You can't just expect to do it on your own and work your way into something. You actually need to receive something in order for that to happen, for you to be able to live the way that God intended for you to live. Um, And so he wants them to understand this. So we're going to read Colossians 2, verse 9 through 15. Um, It's on page 822 if you're going to follow along in the Bibles that we've got uh, in the seats. But I want you to pay attention to this. Pay attention to what Paul says uh, that Jesus does to us and for us. What it means to receive him and the kind of changes, not that we make to ourselves, but that Jesus makes to us. Because he's going to mention a bunch of them. So starting in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, that is God, lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. With Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So let me just ask, what are some of the things that Paul mentions throughout this passage that Jesus does either to us or for us? What are some of the changes that happen when we receive Him? What are some of the things that you saw that Jesus either does to us or for us? Yeah. So just as He died and rose again, that happens to us too. And baptism is a symbol of that. Good. Okay. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just reading off the page. It's in the Bible. Yeah, he's, He circumcises our hearts, right? Um, we'll talk about that more in a second. Yeah, you've been made full. All the fullness that was in Him is now brought into your life. What else? Yeah. So He is now our head rather than our, our own bodies and, and the desires of our bodies being the things that rule us uh, and, and determine our life. Now, Jesus is our new head, which means he has authority over us. Right? Good. Yeah, there was a charge against us that, that, that condemned us, and Jesus took it away from us. He nailed it to the cross. It's one of my favorite passages. I love the, we're gonna we're gonna really soak in that in a second, but I love that. He made us alive, yeah. So just as Jesus is alive today, it's not like we worship a dead God. Jesus rose from the dead, that's what we're gonna celebrate at Easter, and just as Jesus is alive and sitting on the throne today, so he makes us alive. Josh, you got your hand up. Yeah, that should make us feel pretty, uh, not just significant, but powerful, right? If the one who made a spectacle out of every power and authority, I mean, think of all the things that are powerful and have authority in this world, things that are far stronger than you. Jesus is the one who has power and authority over all of them, and he uses that power to fill you. I mean, that's crazy, right? You are far more powerful than you think you could be in him as you trust in Him and are filled by Him and seek His, his, his filling in your life, right? It's good. I mean, if, there's a lot of things that could be said about this passage. What, really, what Paul really wants to make sure that, that we understand is that there is a fullness that can only be found in Jesus because He is God in the flesh. Did you pick that up? Right from the beginning. He is the fullness of the deity in bodily form. That's what he says in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness dwells in Him, and in Him you have been made to fullness. You're full. Um, all of His resources, everything that belongs to Jesus, Jesus uses to meet your greatest needs. I mean, so think of you like as, as a vessel that is completely empty and Jesus being completely full and he pours all of himself into you. The way that Jesus himself puts it is found in John 10:10. 10, 10. He says, "The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full." That's the reason I've come. And so the only one, Jesus, who never lacked anything, came to use his life to fill us, who lacked everything, so that we would be full in every way. It's amazing, right? I don't know if you ever thought about Jesus that way. And yet here's the thing it was true in the in the Colossians world and culture, and it's true in our day and culture that every day we are told that fullness is found somewhere else in some other place. Right? We're told that we are not full. That message is loud and clear in our culture, right? It's not as if somebody's going around going, hey, you're full, just, you know, be content with who you are. No, the message is you're not full. I mean, just watch television for 30 minutes and you'll find out that message pretty quickly, Right? You are not full. That is the message of our culture. But the secondary message of our culture is that if you want to be full, you need other things to fill you. You need products that we have that will sustain you and fill you and make you more attractive and better looking and and more fulfilled in your life, right? You just buy our thing and it will be yours. Or just go somewhere else and that will fill you up. If you just have the right kind of experiences, or vacations, or trips, or, or you know, go around the world and experience all that the human existence has for you, then you'll be full, and that will fill you the rest of your life. There's a particular powerful one uh, that comes along this time of year. It actually just happened yesterday. Yeah. What's the message of Valentine's Day? Right. Yeah. Right exactly if you don't so if you don't prescribe to the hallmark you know way to 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 live the holiday out then you're not experiencing the fullness of love if you're not experiencing the fullness of love then you're lacking something right <laughs> I love that yeah, so that is as men, we have to like qualify everything that we do or don't do on Valentine's Day. Because that, like, you know, if, if you don't meet the expectation, then watch out, right? Then you, have to, then you have to make it up some other way. But that's the message, right? If you find love and if you express it the right way, then you'll be fulfilled. But if you don't have love, particularly on this day of the year, then how in the world could you be fulfilled? I mean, if you don't experience love the way that it's marketed to you, then how in the world can you be full the way that we say you should be full? Uh, It got even ratcheted up even a little bit more this year. Because there was a movie that came out that takes that message even to its furthest extreme. And in that movie and in that book that came out, the marketed message is, especially for you women... Even if that love causes you abuse and shame and torment, even if if you're in the most abusive relationship possible, don't give up on this idea of sexual and romantic love. Because in the end, it will turn out for your pleasure. It's incredibly harmful, incredibly damaging. It twists what God intended to be love into something perverse, so that it would—and really, the message is for women: stay entrapped in abusive relationships, because ultimately it will end out for your good. It has to be. See, it's all over our culture, and what Paul wants to make sure that we understand is that that kind of perversion of what God intended for us. To live, the kind of fullness that He purchased for us, if we are to look for it in some other way, in some other person, in some other form or fashion, thinking that it will provide for us only what our Creator can provide for us, that for us is an outright lie. It's an outright lie. It will not and it cannot fill you the way that only Jesus can. And the reason He came was to fill you so that you would no longer need to fill yourself in things that cannot sustain you forever. See, if you want to be brought to fullness, if you want to experience the life that God created for you, then you can only find that life in Jesus. It's only in Him that you get filled. And He's not just a good example for you. It's not like you just go, wow, Jesus lived seemingly a very fulfilling life. And so if I just try to emulate Jesus' life and give my life away to other people or live it really well, because He lived it really well, then I'll be really full. No, you need Him. Remember what I said, you cannot run a race that you did not begin. You cannot begin this race without receiving the One who begins it in you. You actually need to receive Him. And if you don't receive Him, you cannot run this race. You cannot continue where you didn't start. You actually need Him. And what that means is when you do receive Him, God does something in you and to you through Jesus that only He can do. And Paul goes on to mention, I think, at least three ways that Jesus, the fullness of God, the fullness of Him in bodily form, uses his life to fill you. So here's the message. If you want to be filled, you need to actually receive him and he does at least these three things in you. And Paul wants to be absolutely clear that we understand it. There are three things that you'll never find anywhere but him. You can use your entire life to search for them somewhere else. You will always come up lacking. So the first thing is that in receiving Jesus, we actually go from slavery to freedom. That's one of the things that that you guys mentioned. But here's the thing. As Americans, we like to think of ourselves as the freest people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. Right? I mean, our whole country and culture is founded on the fact that we're free. But, in many ways that's true, but our freedom is a freedom from restriction. Do you know what I mean by that? It's a freedom of individual liberty that people in other countries only dream of, but it's the kind of freedom that says you can have access to anything that you you know you please as long as you have the right work ethic to get it. So just pursue it all. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Just go after it, because if you get it, you'll have it, and that will change your life and make you full. And yet, here's the truth. The freedom from restriction to pursue anything that we want actually ends up leading us to be enslaved by a whole host of other things that are internal slave masters rather than external. It's beautiful the way that Jesus puts this in John 8. He's having a conversation with some people, and he says this, If you hold to my teaching, and you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free and it's it's great because the audience responds just as an American would, right It's like this is like the 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 quintessential American response to the fact that you know you could be set free from something because they answer him this way, say, "We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we will will be set free he's like. It's been generations since we were enslaved to Egypt. We don't have any, and and they're conveniently forgetting that they're under the oppression of the Roman government at this very moment. So they're already a little bit deluded about what's going on. But they're going, we're we're free externally. We can go wherever we want and we can do whatever we want so long as it's within the, the rules of society. How can you say that we're not free? We're obviously free. And Jesus beautifully says it this way. Truly I tell you, anyone who sins, everyone who sins, is a slave to sin. See, he's going, you guys are just thinking externally. But your external freedom actually leads you to be internally enslaved to things that you think aren't really slave masters, but they are. You're enslaved. And so think about some of the things that are internal kind of slavery to us in this day and age. Think of some of the things that, that enslave people on the inside where they on the outside look incredibly free, but on the inside you know that they are in complete and utter bondage. I, 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 mean, I tend to think of things like guilt and shame and remorse and loss, abuse and addiction, the relationships that have turned sour might be abusive, just like we talked about before. What do you think are some of the things that you're enslaved to? See, on the outside, you might think, well, I'm free. But if we were actually to open the door to your heart, what kind of chains would be wrapped around it for you? See, I realized something about myself this past week. Um, is that in my own life, I tend to be enslaved to the idea that I deserve comfort. And I know that this is an enslavement because when I don't receive comfort, I get really angry. And here's how you know you're enslaved to something. it, It becomes really apparent to you when you encounter someone who is completely free where you're enslaved. You know, it's one thing to be in a cage and everyone else is in the same cage and you're like, hey, we're all free because we can all roam around the same cage. And then you see somebody roaming outside of your cage and you go, oh. That's what freedom looks like. So I realized it in this last week because I spent a week of time with people who are not enslaved to the idol of culture or comfort. They live very, very uncomfortable lives. This particularly driven home when the first day we met with the leadership council and there's one man who lost his leg in the hurricane because he was trying to keep his house from falling over and it fell on his leg and he had to have it amputated twice and then fitted for a prosthetic that no longer fits him, and he still walks up and down the mountain every day to be with the leadership council and to be with his church family and to try as much as he can to keep his farm going so that he can feed his family. I go, Luke Nair is not living a comfortable life, and yet he is filled with joy. See, when you view someone on the outside of your particular jail cell, you go, wow, I'm enslaved. What is it for you? See, here's the thing. When we come to understand what our enslavement might be, even though we're enslaved to those things, we play this game with ourselves where we think that we can probably overcome that enslavement if we can just unlock the door ourselves. There's got to be a key around here. Something that I can do, some kind of effort that I can give that I can just figure out a way to MacGyver my way out of this jail cell. And what you actually have, have to come to learn is that the, the key and the, the, the way out is not found on the inside of your jail cell. It is only on the outside. And the only one that holds the key to be able to unlock it is Jesus. And that's why Paul says this way, Jesus, He is the head over every power and authority. You want the key to your particular enslavement? You look to Him because He has all authority. In Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision that's not performed by human hands. Your whole self, which was ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. See, uh, circumcision, as someone mentioned before, is an outward kind of symbol of putting off a small piece of yourself as a sign of your commitment to God. So it's, it's something that you do to yourself to go, I'm no longer enslaved, I'm free. That's the whole reason why Jesus' audience said, hey, we're Abraham's descendants, we've undergone circumcision, we're not enslaved to those things anymore. See, it's a, circumcision is a way for us to go, yep, I'm good with God. I've shown my commitment to him and if if you if you don't know what the actual act of circumcision is then you're going to have a really interesting car ride home as you talk about that <laughs> See but in Paul's day it was a way of proving that you were acceptable to God And here's the thing in our culture we don't use the act of circumcision anymore but we do use all kinds of other external evidences as a way to cover up our internal condition of being enslaved to sin. We either try to show self-improvement in the area that we're enslaved, thinking that that will earn our significance before God, or we'll try to play some kind of you know card trick where we go, well, don't look at this one over here, but look at the ways that I've succeeded in this way. Right? And so we use all kinds of other ways as external measurements of us being okay whether it be our good behavior, or our service to other people, or our income, or even our church attendance, where we use our kids' grades, or our family cohesion, or whatever the case might be for us. And Paul wants to make sure we understand the fact that you look to those things as evidence of your acceptability before God is only proof how much your heart is actually in need of Him. It's only showing how much you actually need Him to come in and do a real work in your heart. Because once He does the real work in your heart, you can actually be honest about what you're enslaved in. Because it no longer has power over you. You can be honest with it even to other people and go, you know what, I struggle with this. This is a real problem in my life. But I can be okay about it because I know that it does not define me anymore. It's when you have to hide those things that Paul goes, that's proof that you need a dear circumcision. You need something else going on. See, God's intention was never that humans were only dedicated to Him through what they do on the outside. God's desire was always that we, that He would come and rule in our hearts and have our whole beings. And you will never experience the fullness of of life that God intends for you if you remain satisfied by what you can earn in your own strength and your own effort. Continue to trust in the circumcision by human hands and what you can produce for Him and watch how full you get from that. See, it's a form of emptiness because in your heart you'll know that it's never quite enough and you'll still be enslaved to sin. But the good news of the Gospel is that in Christ, the one with all authority and power to live as you should but do not, uses His power to set you free and give you new ability to live lives that you should. This is not about following some list of rules. It's actually about God coming and living in you to want to live differently. That's why Paul says elsewhere to a different church in Rome, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. So to receive Him isn't to come to Jesus and go, look at what I've done to clean myself up. Or look at all the ways that I'm going to promise to try harder. It's to come to Him and say, look at what I've done. Look at how incapable I am of changing myself. But I know that in my incapability, I come to you and you're able to actually change me. So Jesus, come and do in my heart and in my life what only you can do. Um, Second, these are going to get increasingly shorter, I promise. In receiving Jesus, we go from death to life. We go from from death to life. Slaves to freedom, death to life. Because here's the thing. In the same way that we underestimate our ability to deal with sin, in the same way we're not really honest with ourselves about our own ability, we're also underestimators in terms of our ramifications of that sin. And so we like to think of sin as something separate from us. Something that we do sort of in our bad moments, and our weaker moments, but it's not really us, right? It's only something that we commit with our hands. It's not something that infects our minds and our hearts. And God's going, no, you don't understand. The reason that you affect sin with your hands is because it has infected your mind and your heart. You would never rebel against God in your actions if you didn't believe a lie about Him in your minds that changes the way your heart loves something else more than Him. Every time you do that, it will result in you living in a way that God did not intend for you to live. And that's why circumcision on the outside, can never affect sin on the inside. Because our sinfulness isn't just on the surface of our lives, it's actually much deeper than that. In fact, if you were to try to take a knife and cut out your sin, you would have no choice but to kill yourself because our rebellion from God is actually in our hearts and in our minds. You couldn't take the knife deep enough enough without actually taking your life. And that's why... Death has to happen in order for sin to be atoned for. Because you can't take the knife just to the surface as these uh, people were teaching the Colossian church they could do and then be okay. Paul's going, no, 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 the knife has to go much deeper than that. And according to God's story, we don't have lives that we can improve. We're actually dead people walking that need to be resuscitated. Um, but here's what the Gospel says. In receiving Jesus, you don't have to resuscitate yourself. You don't have to take the knife as deep as it will go because the knife went deep into someone else. And Jesus, who is sinless in every way, uses His life in place of your life. And so when Paul says it this way, having been buried with Him in baptism you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. See, the wonderful news of the Gospel is that in receiving Jesus, you receive His life. You receive a life that's eternal and complete and reconciled with God. But here's the hard news. In order to receive this life, you must die. You cannot have confidence in your own life and, and receive the life that Jesus has for you. You must actually agree with God that your sin is far worse than you could have conceived and that a life lived for yourself ultimately results in your death. See, it's far more than circumcision. Circumcision. Circumcision is just taking a small piece of you while the rest is untouched. Baptism, what Paul is saying, a circumcision of your entire life, is literally going under the water, which is saying, in essence, my whole life needs to go. Everything that I was before him, I, I I, I now have no confidence in. My entire confidence is in Jesus and what he's done for me. See, oftentimes we think of baptism as the opposite of that. And I know people, because I've been a pastor long enough, who said, you know, I would get baptized as an adult, but I'm waiting until I'm really committed to Him. (laughs) Do you ever think of that? Like I'm waiting, which is really just saying, like I'm waiting for, you know a day when that will happen in the future and I don't know what it looks like, but I'll know when I get there, when my life looks straight enough and clean enough and acceptable enough that I can come to Jesus and say, yes, I do commit to you. Now get Now clean the rest up. You don't understand. Getting into the water, going under and coming back out is in a sense saying, I have no hope in myself any longer. See, it's not the It's not what you do kind of in the middle of your journey once you've you know, earned up enough credit for yourself. It's something that you do at the beginning of your journey when you go, I have no hope apart from Him. I need His whole life to come in and to change me. So, it's a good opportunity just to mention that we're going to be doing baptisms on Easter as we always do. So, if you've never been baptized before, please consider it. Because it's God's symbolic act it's not something that happens to you in the water it's a symbol of what god has already done to you in saving you and making you new and giving you a new identity third and last in receiving jesus we go from condemned to blameless i want you to close your eyes for a second more than a second Because we often don't give this enough thought and credit. So as your eyes are closed, I want you to imagine that you're in the middle of a courtroom. You're looking around, and around in the courtroom, you see everyone that you know. Family, friends, acquaintances, co-workers, people that you grew up with and haven't seen for years. And you're... Man, you can't believe all the people that you've ever come into contact with and know you by name. It's a big courtroom just filled with all kinds of people. You're wondering why in the world you're there. And all of a sudden, a judge comes in. Everyone rises. And then he sits down in his place. And then he asks you to rise out of everyone in the courtroom, thousands of people. He says, please rise to you. And so you stand up. You're a little bit confused at this point. You're wondering what's going on. And he says to you, you have been condemned. And the sentence for your condemnation is death. How do you feel right now? You're probably feeling outraged right how in the world and you cry out what could i have possibly done to deserve such a harsh sentence instead of answering you the judge pulls out a very long and heavy scroll and he hands it to the bailiff who brings it over to you and puts it into your possession And you unroll the the scroll and you begin to read and you're shocked because you realize that on this scroll is a list. It's a very personal list. You start to read and you realize it's a list of everything that you've ever done. Every self-centered, hurtful, greedy, damaging thing you've ever done, every sin you've ever committed every harmful thing that you've ever said, even everything that you've ever thought but never acted on. And as you read, the level of shame that you feel puts a knot in your stomach. Not only is it a list of what you've done, but you realize that under, under every item that's listed, it also contains every consequence for your action. So that every hurt that you've caused and alienation that you've created, all the results of the things that you've done that you never knew actually happened by your own sin. And you skip ahead because it's just too much to carry for you to, to carry that burden. And you realize it's only the first section. You get to the second section and the second section is actually sins that you've committed against God. And it details in great detail all the ways that you've distrusted Him and abused the life that He gave you and gratified yourself instead of Him and sought your own good instead of resting in His goodness, trusted your own abilities instead of His, scorned His forgiveness by trying to prove yourself to other people and looked for satisfaction in places that aren't Him. And you realize, reading through this scroll, all the ways that you've grieved God and other people. Now the tears start to flow. Your eyes begin to well up and you skip down to the end of the scroll because it's too much for you to, to bear. You're too ashamed to read every charge against you. And at the bottom, there's a verdict that is read and it says, guilty of rebellion against the giver of life. And the sentence for that Verdict is death, an eternal separation from the one who made you. The bailiff comes over and he takes the scroll from your hand and he gives it back to the judge. The judge begins to unroll it and you realize as he clears his throat that he's about to tell everyone that you've ever known, everything that you've ever done, said, or thought. How do you feel in that moment? just before he gets the opportunity to start to declare everything that has gone on in your life, you see Jesus standing next to you. And before he has an opportunity, the judge, to say any word against you, Jesus comes in and he declares before everyone, every charge that is on that scroll, instead of reading their name, I want you to read my name. Please give... This person, you, everything that I deserve, and give me everything that they deserve. Every charge against them is to be credited to my name, and I will bear the punishment and the brunt of the sentence on their behalf. The judge agrees, and he begins to read the scroll, and it's Jesus' name that's attached to every wrong. And everyone looks at Jesus and you know in your heart that it was you that committed all those things, but you're hearing Jesus' name read for every offense on your behalf. Jesus is the one who distrusted God. Jesus is the one who looked for satisfaction elsewhere. Jesus is the one who scorned God's forgiveness and tried to prove Himself before others. And you're going in your heart, He never did any of those things. And you look over at Jesus and instead of, scowling at you. He's smiling. And you realize that he's actually taking it because he loves you. Now open your eyes and listen to this verse. Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. See, Jesus is led out of that courtroom after having every charge that was due to you put on him, and he goes to the cross and he pays for it all. See, often when we realize that we're in fact slaves to sin, And that sin produces in us a sentence of death. Our next emotion that strangles our hearts is a sense of condemnation. And we think that to receive Christ means that somehow we're to use the rest of our life to wallow in shame and guilt and beat ourselves up for all the ways that we fail to live up to God's good graces. And many of you, I know because this is common in our culture and our society and even our church culture, have experienced a type of Christianity which tells you you need to live the rest of your life in guilt and shame. Because that is what it means to be a Christian. And the truth is, that is a lie. To receive Jesus is not just to receive His life, but to receive His fullness and absolute blamelessness. So you can leave that courtroom knowing that the charges against you will never ever be brought up ever again. It's not like someone's going to come to you some other day and go, oh, by the way, there was a caveat. We need you back in the courtroom. Never. You're free. You're alive. And you're blameless. See, Jesus, He goes and He takes that charge that was against you and he nails it to the cross so that above his head is a letter with big red letters on it saying paid in full. So what that means is that instead of living a life full of guilt and shame, you get to live a life full of joy. That's what it means to be people who receive him. We don't just receive him once and then forget about him and try to live it ourselves. We receive him each and every day. So I want to encourage you. I know there are some of you who this is new information for. And I want to encourage you and and implore you that if you have not received Jesus in this way, please do so. It's open and it's available to you today. You need to do nothing other than receive it. That's the only thing that you can do. It's the only thing that you get to do. But on the other hand... I know that there are many of us who have been part of this thing called the Christian life for years. And our tendency is to receive him in this way at the beginning and then live differently the rest of our lives. And I want to encourage you, come back to the way that you lived when you first came to know him. That's what Paul is saying when he says, just as you received Christ, so continue in him. How many of you have ever seen the movie uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button? Remember that with Brad Pitt? Remember the plot of that movie? I know it's very long and the plot gets kind of messed up in the middle and you're like, what is this movie about? But essentially, the movie is about someone who when he's born is very old. Remember this? And he lives his life in reverse. And so the longer he's on earth, the, the younger he gets, not the older he gets. And so he's born the first few years of his life, he's an old man, and then as he lives his life, he, he becomes a younger and a younger man, and then towards the end of his life he becomes a, a child, and then an infant, and then a baby, and then he, he dies. I was thinking about that movie because essentially it's a picture of the Christian life. Most people think that the Christian life is you become an infant when you come to know him, and then you you over time mature to the point where you're an adult and you no longer need God. And you may have never put it that way, but oftentimes that's functionally the way that we live. Paul is saying to us, please live your life in reverse. What it means to be a mature follower of Jesus is that over time you realize all the ways you're more dependent on Him rather than less. And so as you grow up into Christ, you become more dependent on Him, more needy of Him, and you realize that you're actually a child and you need to look to your Father for absolutely everything. So I want to encourage you, if you've been at this thing for a number of years, live your life in reverse. Just as you received Him at the beginning, so you live your life in Him today. Let's pray.